0: Ezekiel 24 says again in the ninth year and the tenth month on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day, king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. Utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather pieces of meat in it, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice cuts. Take the choice of the flock. Also pile fuel bones under it. Make it boil well and let the cuts simmer in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece on which no lot has fallen for her blood is in her midst. She set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust. That it may raise up fury and take vengeance, I have set her blood on top of a rock that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I too will make the pyre great, heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot and its bronze may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies. Her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed. You will not be cleansed of your filthiness any more till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. The next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that you behave so? And I answered them, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. You shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do, and when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord. And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they have set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that on that day one who escapes will come to you, to let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be open to him who has escaped. You shall speak and no longer be mute, and thus you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Amen. in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. <laughs> Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, But also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led To repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what Clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we've been comforted in your comfort we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. His affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. The church is the temple of the living God. The church is the sole place that God promises to dwell among his people. His people are the place in which he dwells. All of these things are true. Children, in the Old Testament, you know that when God built the temple, he built it out of stones. If we were to read First Peter, we would see that those stones prefigured the people, that Peter himself, by the Spirit, calls us the living stones that God is building his temple with, building his place to live. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. He said for his disciples to obey his commandments and love him so that he would come to dwell with them. His father and him would make their home with the disciples. The church is the place where the Lord God walks. The church is the place where Jesus walks. The church walks with God like Enoch of old. Remember Enoch, the one who walked with God. And as the King James says, then he was not. These are some of the promises that Paul is referring to from the first verse of chapter 7. Maybe you noticed. Uh, he says, having these promises, beloved, what are they? Right? If we were to look back at chapter 6, we'd see them. I just rehearsed a few of them for you about the church being the temple of the living God. Another one is this. He says, I will be a father to you. God will be a father to the church and the church shall be my sons and daughters. Very often or normally it says the church will be or uh, the church is the sons of the living God. But there are times when God emphasizes that sons and daughters are included as well. And as Andrew said, when it says just sons, of course, uh, women are to understand themselves as sons in that sense. But with this being the case... Paul proceeds forth in his expectation, his his exhortation. He's going to encourage them. He's going to instruct them based on these promises. Paul establishes this declaration of God, or if you want to call it the indicative, if you prefer uh, grammatical terms like that, the indicative is given at the end of chapter 6. And chapter 7 is more like uh, a long-sustained imperative. But what is the first imperative that he gives? In verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, so outwardly and inwardly, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, this is tied in with remembering those promises. What, what could we say about that? Well, the truth is that God dwells among you, and Paul calls on you by the Spirit to do your best to make yourself, the place where God dwells, a place that is pleasing to Him. To make yourself a tidy home for God, as it were. To cleanse yourself from all filthiness. To clean your house. To clean yourself. And this is a perfect backdrop for our topic of consideration this evening, a topic I mentioned to you in the announcements this morning, maybe you remember, but our focus is going to be on the doctrine of repentance. Paul spends uh, the middle of this text talking about repentance, and that's what we're going to focus on and see how this whole chapter kind of relates to that. Connecting this concept from chapter 6 to chapter 7, I believe it would be very beneficial to you, to us, to see repentance like this. Continually cleansing yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit because God dwells in the church. Cleansing yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God, all of that because God dwells in the church. He walks among the church and he is the God of the church. You are to pursue repentance because all of those things are true. Jesus Christ has accomplished this great work. He, of course, is the one that is ultimately pictured as God among us, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. John 1, 1. The word was God. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us to make us the dwelling of God with him. And repentance, what it is, it is cleansing yourself by God's grace. Cleansing yourself in light of the promises of God. Now, that does not make repentance a work of the flesh. As the catechism says, I'll get to in just a moment. It is a saving grace. It is something that is granted, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But that repentance is granted does not change the fact that we are called to do it any more than uh, us being called to believe is nullified by the fact that God gives us the grace of faith. Both are true. That something is required of you by God does not mean that you can do it on your own, but it does mean that you can do it as he works in you. You work it out, as Paul says elsewhere. Our shorter catechism gives a definition of repentance, and it calls it repentance unto life. Maybe they had in mind uh, this text of Paul here because he speaks sort of of a way of repentance that does not lead to life. But they say, what is repentance unto life? You've been through Communicus class. You've heard this question, worked through it. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from sin to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's a technical definition of repentance. I want to talk about repentance for just a moment under uh, four points. They're not really overly organized, but they are four points that come from this passage. And the first I've already mentioned, and that is repentance is cleansing yourself. It's submitting yourself to the mercy of God afresh and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The second thing is repentance is a fruit and a joy of pastoral ministry. Repentance is a fruit and a joy, both of those, of pastoral ministry. And this is a hard teaching. You know how you read the Bible and verses kind of hit you in a way that they never have. This comes from verse 15 as I was preparing for the sermon this week. This is a hard teaching. Paul says in verse 15 that Titus' affections for the church at Corinth, remember Titus, the epistle of Titus, who was left in Crete to set in order what was lacking. Titus' affections for the church at Corinth were greater because he remembered their obedience. How they received him, meaning the apostolic teaching, with fear and trembling. Titus's joy was greater because the church was honoring the Lord by obeying the word taught in the ministry. This is a type of love in the church that is not often spoken of. A shepherd's love for his flock, Paul says about Titus, a shepherd's love for his flock is in some way based upon their reception of him and the truth. You can have one You can have a flock that receives a pastor, whether he preaches the truth or not. You can have a flock that receives only the truth, but really hates their pastor. But with those things, you must have both in order to have the love, the great affections that Paul speaks of here. And this message comes from the God who comforts. The downcast. Uh, this is basically a theme of Second Corinthians, running from chapter one all the way through, where Paul mentions that God comforts those uh, who are in His church, that they might comfort others. This consolation. We preached a sermon on it a few months back. I can't remember quite how long, but I remember preaching Second Corinthians one. God comforts the downcast. This same God, He shares the consolation of Christ. The the consolation, the comforts that God gave Christ, His Son, like. Some of which Andrew spoke of this morning when Jesus was comforted and sustained by the angels in the the wilderness and his temptations. God shares this with, among, and through his people. And it is proof of the life of Christ in a church. Holiness increases. Love increases. Fruit of the Spirit is shown. Shepherds live honestly. Congregations respond joyfully because God is present. All of these things are being reflected and kind of circulating around Paul's teaching about repentance. Repentance will be present as well. It is bound up in the life of the children of God. Similar to what James teaches in James chapter 2, that a true faith is shown by works. Repentance is showing a pursuit of holiness. As we are being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, we will be turning from sin, that we will be like him and that we might be a clean temple for him to walk in. There is language in the prophets where it speaks of God walking among the pillars of the temple, looking on, surveying his people. In Revelation 1, it says Jesus walks among the candlesticks. What does he see? You see, repentance is one word that can almost entirely summarize the Christian life because we are always turning from sin and always turning to God in Christ, receiving that mercy again and again. That's why I mentioned the rhythm of the gospel. That's the reason our worship services are constructed the way they are, to always have that rhythm in front of you. There will be joy in the forgiveness of sins and there will be sadness when confronted And convicted of our sin, but it is all unto life and glory. So when Paul speaks of his letter making them sorry, you know what's happening. Like when someone gives you news, uh, bad news, it makes you sorry. But as so many say, there's no good news in Christianity without bad news. Similar idea is behind what Paul is saying here. He wrote to them to confront sin. He was sorry at first because he's a man. No one likes to make people feel that way. Though he did regret it, he no longer did. Why? Because repentance was worked in them. He had confronted them, the text says, about the sin that was among them. Now, you read the commentaries, you get some disputes about what this particular sin is. Um, most that I'm familiar with point back to 1 Corinthians 5 and the man who was uh, shacking up with his, um, I believe it was his stepmother uh, or his mother-in-law, something to that effect. Um, someone who uh, he should not certainly have been um, with uh, that speaks of this man who was confronted, this this one who had done wrong, verse 12 mentions him. Possibly a reference to 1 Corinthians 5, but there's likely more that was involved because the people are repenting as a whole. No one is overjoyed at first to be confronted by sin, but the joy comes when it leads to repentance and life. Paul helps them by the Spirit. Indeed, the Spirit is helping the church in all ages to discern what Paul speaks of in verses 9 and following To discern true repentance from false. Paul wrote them a letter. Repentance was shown. Great joy was had by Paul and Titus. But how does he diagnose true repentance from false? The New King James uses the word sorrow and contrasts two different types starting in verses 9 and 10. Those two types of sorrow are godly and worldly. Godly sorrow. And worldly sorrows. Remember the first thing I mentioned to you was about repentance being cleansing yourself. Second thing was repentance is a fruit and joy of pastoral ministry. And the third thing is here, sorrow does not always lead to repentance. My, oh my, have we not known that in our own lives? That sorrow does not always lead to repentance. May our sorrow always lead to repentance, and may we pray that it would be so. But sorrow, it always gives birth to something, Paul teaches, starting at verse 9. If it produces fruit by the Spirit, then it leads to salvation. But if it is regretted, that is sorrow of the world, or sorrow like the world, and it produces or it leads to death. You see, what's at stake here? Like our sermon this morning, rightly identifying the Lord Jesus Christ. True repentance shows salvation or not. Parents, this is a tremendous lesson that you can teach your children and what it truly means to repent and sorrow in a godly fashion. I do hope that you show them in your own life what repentance is. Yes, we should be uh, confessing our sins to our children, not all of our sins, but especially when we sin against them. We should confess that to them, no matter how old we are as parents. I hope you show that to them in your own life. I hope you explain that to them with your words and instruct them by the means provided, what sorrow is meant to do. Let me give an example. Worldly sorrow is like crying over a spanking, but going very soon back to the same behavior. Godly sorrow is crying over a spanking, and seeking to never do it again. Not saying that you will never do it again, but that you seek to never do it again. You at least show progression in how sin is handled and how they respond when you, they are confronted by it. You see, we don't want robots that don't grieve over sin. The Lord Jesus wept over his friend. He was grieved over the state of his people rejecting him. We don't want people who don't grieve. We grieve over sin. I think the first hymn we sang, um, uh, 353, spoke of crying tears for the church. Christians are a grieving people. But you're given even more fruit of godly sorrow in verse 11. He says, look at these things. Observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Look at what it produced. It produced diligence. How convicting. Repentance that produces diligence. Clearing of yourselves, meaning no accusation could be held against you. Or as is spoken of uh, John the Baptist's parents, blameless living. What indignation? I take that to be like a hatred of sin. Indignation towards evil. What fear? Fear of God, fear of Um, filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, all those things. What vehement or vehement desire, similar to diligence. What zeal, zeal with knowledge, obviously. Zeal without knowledge is something that Paul condemns elsewhere. What vindication, vindicated before God and man, or as James says in James chapter 2, justified by works. He says, in all these things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This is the fruit of godly sorrow. It's the fruit that we pray for, the fruit that we seek. But notice it is produced in diligence. It's a work. It takes effort. And this fourth thing is given at the end of verse 12. Shepherds pursue repentance in the church so that God would see that they care for the church. The end of verse 12, where he says, that our care for you in the sight of God is, might appear to you. That's phrased very funky. If you slow down and read it. That our care for you. In the sight of God. Might appear to you. Right. So the care that Paul and Titus had for the church. Was care that was in the sight of God. He's saying God knows. But he wants them to know too. Shepherds pursue repentance in the church so that God would see and the people would see that they care for the church. Shepherds work to bring the church to holiness. Seeking repentance is but one of the ways, not the only way. As the BCO says, elders are to seek the fruit of the word in the life of the congregation. And this work and and all others that shepherds do that Christians do, broadly speaking, but especially those who stand in the place of Titus and Paul. That work is said to be performed in the sight of God, and it appears to the church. True Christian churches know when this work is being done. True Christian churches know when this work is not being done. Even more than the church might know or might have the ability to know, the Lord knows, because unlike the church, the Lord God Almighty is unable to err. Christ, as king over his church, looks on her with perfect sight and guards her better than any human shepherd can. And thanks be to God for that and all other graces that he gives to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let me remind you of the four things of relating to repentance in this chapter. Paul himself, the first thing, Paul himself describes repentance as cleansing ourselves, cleansing yourself. Don't be uncomfortable with that. Let the Bible stand and say what it is. Pursue the means that God has given. Return to the promises of God, seeking to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Second, repentance is a fruit and joy of ministry. I don't have to remind those who have been in this congregation much longer than I how frustrating it is to have a backwards ministry, to have an uncomfortable ministry. Pray to the Lord that repentance would always come from this ministry, that it would always be the case that whoever occupies this pulpit, that that fruit would be shown and that would be joy in the ministry. Also, A more personal warning. Again, point number three, sorrow does not always lead to repentance. Parents, it's a good lesson for you with children, but it's also a good lesson for you with yourself. Just because you feel sorry for sin does not mean you're walking in repentance. You have to walk in it, keep going, pursuing, turning from sin to God, claiming the mercy of God in Christ again and again and again and again and again. And then lastly, for the shepherds. We pursue repentance in the church so that God would see and that the church would see our great love and care for them. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are insufficient.